I'm Ruth Franger, founder of Conscious Leaders. This podcast is about providing you with disruptive insights from human leaders, the progressive leaders, and they're willing to talk about the highs and lows of business so you can take away both their philosophy and how it plays out practically day to day. Learn about the podcast and us at consciousleaders.org.uk. So today I welcome John Timpson. Now he's chairman at High Street Brand and family business Timpson's. So they're best known as your local locksmith and shoe repair service. And it's a real honor to hear his journey. I started by asking him just how he got to where he is now. Well, I didn't start the business. The business was started by my great grandfather. So that makes me the fourth generation in the 1860s, a long time ago. And it wasn't a shoe repair, key cutting business. It was a shoe retail business for uh, a long, long time, really, primarily. It was still mainly a shoe retail business when when I was born and when I started working the business. And I started when I was 17 as a shop assistant. Actually, I, I had six weeks in an accountant's office. My father wanted me to be an accountant and I hated it so much I walked out. and. Uh, so after a couple of days in the office filling in some more figures, and, uh, he put me in a shop and uh, that was a lot more interesting, a lot more fun. So that's how I got started and uh, it, it would be the normal sort of thing you'd expect in a family business. that you, know, you, you do a fair amount of time and you get further up the ladder, which I did far too quickly because you know, that's what families do. And uh, I arrived as a director when I was responsible for buying, I was a shoe buyer, I was buying women's shoes, women's fashion shoes. Uh, and at the age of 27, I was in the, I was a director just in time to uh, be in a boardroom bus stop where uh, a cousin, my father, one of my father's cousins who was also a director, was keen to run the whole thing and organised uh, basically uh, a coup okay, wow. and uh, managed to persuade all the other directors to vote my father out of the boardroom or off the chair and so, which, and so he was ousted by seven votes to two. So suddenly it all went different direction and uh, I'll spare you all the details but it was a long period then of uh, that was 1972, and it took till 1983 before we actually, I actually managed to get, get a chance of buying the business back because it, it went out of family hands because outside the family sold all our shares and we became part of something else. Uh, but anyway, got it back, and then uh, I had a pretty terrible time in the mid 80s where we'd done that because the retail business was performing badly. It was obviously heading towards a loss. It was We wouldn't be able to open any more shops. I could see that. Nearly every other chain of shoe shops went the same way, incidentally, in the following decade. Uh, and, but within this business, there was quite a substantial shoe repair, almost totally shoe repair business. Uh, and when I sold the shoe shops, I picked that up, and this is now 1987, and it was 140 shops making uh, 300,000 a year. It was 
there for something to do after having quite a much bigger job before that. And over the last, whatever it is now, 30-something years, that's completely transformed from being a small shoe repair chain to becoming 2,075 uh, service shops nationwide. And uh, we've got turnover of over 300 million, profits of over 30 million. Uh, and uh, it's been, I wouldn't say it's been fun all the way because <laughs> I've uh, I had my own personal struggles with it, but uh, when one looks back and what it's done to the business, but more importantly what it's done for the people of the business, it's, it's been great. Mm. And now your son is the CEO and you're, I, you're a chairman. My eldest son, I've got four sons, but yeah, yeah. my <laughs> el eldest one is uh, it's not just now. Uh, James became uh, our chief executive 20 years ago at the age of 30. Uh, one of our very best decisions, Mike. And, uh, and that's made a very big difference. He's been the engine room that's... Uh, you know, taking it to where it is now. Uh, and I've been in the happy situation of being able to watch him use some of the ideas that I introduced 25 years ago and, uh, and use them to great advantage and add lots of more, th more things to it. Mm. And build up, well, I, think, I, mean, I find it a fascinating business and I think one or two other people wonder how on earth we've done it, but uh, mm. it's, it's been a lot of common sense, really. Right. And I, maybe we can delve into that, because I think you're, you, for anyone that knows you has heard your stuff before, you're known for being a bit more sort of interesting with the way you run the business in terms of how you empower people. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you could talk a little bit to that and maybe broadly your philosophy in how you lead. Yeah. Well, like all things, I, most things in business come uh, due to... A few light bulb moments and a bit of luck. It's seldom thought through at a board retreat uh, or anything like that. And I suppose the light bulb moment, as far as I was concerned, was when uh, we got one big competitor and uh, I wanted to buy that. And they said, certainly not. We're, uh, they were owned by a merchant bank, a Swiss bank. Um, and the guy I went to see turned around and said, look, I'm, I want you to know I'm a professional at buying family businesses and uh, putting in professional management. And therefore, it's not a question of me selling this business to you, it'd be much more us buying yours and, uh, when we're ready. And that made me think very much about the future and where we stood and how we could compete with the business that got a lot more money than us, could uh, open next door, could take our best uh, colleagues and cut our prices or do whatever. And I think it, you go through that process you realise that the only thing you can do in that situation is actually be better than them, provide a better service, particularly in the way you repair the shoes, and then we were cutting keys and everything we did, and also be great at looking after customers. And then the thought process went on a bit more and uh, re realised that actually you can't teach people to provide a good service. 
it training's okay, it does a bit of good. It it might work for some people to tell them what they've got to say to customers and have a nice day and thank you very much for that sort of thing. It might help to have uh, posters in the back of the shop saying, smile, you're on stage, the next person you meet is the most important person in your life. <laughs> or, but actually, if you want to give really good service so that you, you look after the most difficult, the most unusual customers, the only way to do it is to trust the people who are in your shops meeting your customers to do it the way they want. Uh, I'd read about three years before I had this thought process a book about Nordstrom, the department store in the States, and who got a reputation for fantastic service because their sales clerks were free to do what they wanted, to go to the extra mile, literally, and, and surprise and amaze customers. And in the, in the middle of that book was a management chart which was upside down, making the point that it's the people actually working in the stores who make us the money. And everyone else in the organisation is there to support them, to make life as easy as possible for them, and to do everything they can, to, quote, to help them to be the best they could possibly be. So a kind of a service around them, to serve them? That's support. They don't, and if you're going to trust them to do it their way, you don't, you don't give them orders. You don't tell them how to do the job. Hmm. So you don't have policies driven by the head office which turn into processes that everyone's forced to follow. You're there purely to support those people to make life easy so that all they have to do is to concentrate on their job at hand and do it the way they want. They're not totally free to do whatever they want, but they have to follow, because they have to follow the two rules. Rule one is to look the part, and that includes wearing our uniform, turning up on time, uh, keeping the shop clean, and also following these very clear responsibilities, such as uh, making sure that the, the shop is safe and everything is kept in a safe place and so on. And rule number two is very simply, you've got to put the money in the till. And that's it. So there's, but we don't tell them, we give them health and safety training, but we don't say this is exactly the way you've got to run your shop. Whereas most businesses would do that, they'd have the policy which would be turned into a process which becomes, in effect, a way of telling people how they've got to do their job. And the way I saw it is that the policies are de developed by people sat in office who don't know anything like as much as the person who's actually doing the job, so why go through all that expense and so on? Just trust the people. So that was the thought, I got very enthusiastic about it 25 years ago. Um, I, I visit a lot of shops anyway. Still, yeah, you're, you're known for visiting. How many a year do you tend to Well, I, I, I don't count these days. <laughs> I, I used to try and visit all of them when we had up to about 500, well, 400 I could do. Uh, but now it's two, over 2,000. Yeah. Uh, I, I just try to make sure I go to some every week. Yeah. Except when I'm on holiday. Yeah. More and more often these days. Uh, but it's, it, it's more just keeping myself familiar of what, of, of what world Timson is like mm. and also having a chance to talk to my people. Uh, yeah, connect with because them. Because funny enough, 
they tell me they quite like it, even though people say, do you plan it? Well, I don't, I just sort of turn up and no one has a... a the first shop has no warning at all. Every other shop is <laughs> They warned. told them then that you're coming. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the WhatsApp has replaced the telephone <laughs> now, and so everyone knows very quickly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, so I went round visiting shops saying, look, it's great. You've now got the freedom to do whatever you want. And so, on. Mm. so what do you? So tell me. So I think you called it upside down management, which is allowing this. Mm pretty extreme, especially for a corporate, level of autonomy where those individuals running the shops, or if they're a small group, have complete autonomy, besides your two rules, mm. um, over how they run it. So that, presumably that means what they charge for things. And yep. Yeah. What, what have you noticed the benefits for that are? So, so part, partly the positives, and then are there any drawbacks in, in, in terms of resistance? Maybe we could cover both. Of that. Well, the resistance came for. I mean, I, I didn't get away with it. I mean, it was. I went round with all my enthusiasm at the moment, saying this is fantastic. And because so you had this sort of revelation, and then presumably you were then well, working to change. Yeah, and I developed this phrase upside down management, which I registered. It's my, it's, it's our phrase. Uh, but I didn't take, bring the people along with me. Uh, straight away because I w I'd go to a shop and then the area manager would ring up and say look John's good to see you don't take any notice of what he's saying he'll still <laughs> work for me uh, so that identified I've got, I got a few problems here and in fact there are three, three major things that needed to change and it took five years to change them one was head office to stop it being a head office to make sure that everyone in the head office understood they did not any longer run the business. So they weren't the heads, they just... <laughs> they, were, they were used to doing this policy thing, they were used yes. to sending out memos which were seen as being uh, official orders from on high and I wanted to stop that. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to understand that their role is to make life easy for the shops and to serve them through upside down management. So, so we stopped calling it head office and we, we banned any answer phones in the office because this is when communication was by phone, not by digital. Uh, because it was, it was the most important people in the, in the, in the business ringing up, the people who ran the shops, and they, they couldn't be kept waiting. So it, everyone in the office had to pick up a phone if it was ringing, even if it wasn't theirs and do it. Things like that that changed the attitude. Everyone in the, Working in an office, have to go out and work. It's now two days a year in one of our shops, otherwise they don't get a bonus. So turning it around like that. So that was number one. Um, then I got this problem, the line management, the people who, who for years have been working in, in our shops and then got, got, the, got the call, got the promotion, started to wear a suit, had a briefcase, got mm. a car to go Finally around. an area manager. Yeah, they were the area manager. Yeah. And it's quite understandable they were reluctant to give up what they saw as the power of that and allow and, and be told they can't tell the people what to do like they were told when they were in shops. And uh, so that took a fair bit of time to explain to them that, you know, in fact, your job is to help the people, not to tell them what to do. And we, and I said, well, surely, I mean, I, I can't. I can't be responsible for it if I can't 
gives them orders. You're going to have to find another way. Uh, and then if I can't do all these things to tell them, what do I do? What, my, what is my job? And so we've completely reinvented what a boss does, really. And uh, so our people are there to look after the people in their team. Yeah. There are key roles. One is to pick the right people. Another is to say goodbye to the people who are not right. That's very important. It's a very positive, not a negative role. And the other is to do everything they can to make life easier for the people who work in the team. Mm. which could be training, it could be making sure they've got all the right equipment, they've got all the materials, everything's, everything's there for them. And also, particularly, to help our people when the biggest thing can get in the way of their work, which is something that happens in the rest of their lives. So a lot of our area managers these days are involved in mental health issues, divorce, people got drug problems, money problems where we do a lot of financial health advice hmm. uh, and where bereavement comes along and all those sort of things which get them because they're the things that if you've got someone's great and they don't suddenly go off the boil I'll guarantee it's one of those other things that's going on in their lives so that's why it's so important and it sounds like that area manager role wow that's that's a huge amount of emotional intelligence that they're going to so need to develop sadly, right? a job they thought they'd lost what they thought was a great job, but in fact, they suddenly found a job which, which was fantastic, because they are, if you like, our social workers. They're uh, they're there looking after people. It's a pure people job because our business, perhaps more than most, but I think all businesses are about people, and that's why our area managers now centre on that, which which pointed up the other very important part of our upside down management is it only really works if you've got the right people. Mm. And, and kind of honing in on that actually, because you, you said something about um, you know, you've got to hire great people, but you've also got to let people go mm-hmm. who aren't right. Um, could you delve a little bit more into what makes a great staff member and then how you have conversations of, of letting someone go, for example, because this can be very challenging stuff for, I think, a lot of leaders. So, mm-hmm. so can you talk to that a bit? Okay. First of all, who do we want? We just want people with the right personality. Not bothered about what qualifications they've got. We do all the training. Where everyone who joins us uh, out in the field starts as an apprentice. Everybody. We don't hire anyone to go into the field management side from outside. So every, no one's immediately an area manager? or Every, every area manager we've got, everyone within the area manager's team with their deputies and so on, the training managers, get development, all this stuff that we have out there, it all started with us as an apprentice. So that saves a lot of bother, I can assure you. Um, but we only want people who rate 9 or 10 out of 10 on personality. What does that mean? Well... It means, very simply, that we want people to get it. They understand why we run our things. But is um, it about attitude, or what is it you're looking okay. for in detail? I'll, I'll tell you how it... Because we are wanting people who are going to get on very well with their colleagues and be able to get on very well with customers and to provide that service which makes a difference, we want people who are basically keen, they want to do the job, they're, they're, they're happy. They So when we started doing this, we weren't looking for them. 
we were looking for people who repair shoes and cut keys, who weren't always. I mean, some of the best shoe repairs in the world could easily be described as a grumpy cobbler. <laughs> and, and it's pretty obvious that, I mean, you, you can take someone with good, great personality and teach them to cut keys, but if you've got a grumpy cobbler, however skilled he or she might be, you'll not, you'll not train hard. out the grumpiness. Yeah. And that grumpiness is not what I want. So we, as most of the recruitment is done out in the field, we've developed this, well, I wrote it in, just on a train journey, our, uh, interview for, for interview assessment form, which is all in pictures. We, we love to work in pictures because it's all a great way to communicate. And these are pictures, little Mr. Men pictures of Mrs. Happy, Mr. Keen, Mrs. Helpful. And then there's the other lot who are Mr. Grumpy, Mr. Slow, uh, and Miss, Miss, I see, Mrs. Cheat, and so on. Wait, we, and we, there's an empty box under each of these pictures, and you just, we're not interested in the candidate talking about what they've done in this job and what their careers are. We want them to talk about themselves. Mm. So we just say, well, you know, what did you do last weekend, or what's your favourite hobbies? Well, let's get chatting. And then you just tick the box, so the boxes that they fit. And if they're, if they're happy, they're keen, they're helpful, they're smiling, then we get them to work in one of our shops for a day, we'll pay for, pay, pay for that, and that tells us all we need to know. Mm. So that's, that's how, and we've been doing that for 25 years. And if you keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, then you do actually develop a team that are, uh, we've set this challenge when my son James and I went to Disney to talk to their, backstage team and so it said your aim should be to have a business as full of nines and tens and don't ask me to define exactly the but you should know what a nine I mean mm. everyone know, everyone is familiar with that sort of terminology and they asked a really key question is so what do you do with a seven <laughs> what do you do with your sevens and then we suddenly realized that the, it's a very important part of the job to tackle the sixes and sevens. Certainly we always tackle the ones and twos, but uh, those sixes and sevens, because it's very rare that you're able to change them. And what you're doing by hanging on to them is actually making life tougher for the nines and tens that you've got, because mm. they don't want to work alongside somebody who doesn't care as much about the business as they do. And you mentioned that perhaps them, well not perhaps, asking them to move on would be actually a good conversation. Um, That's what it should be. What it should be or what you'd hope for. How, how would you encourage or have you had conversations that mean that is true well, for them? This is, it's simply the thinking behind that is that uh, a lot of these people who actually don't haven't got the same personality or doesn't show the same personality in terms of more sickies, more negative conversations. They're not happy. They've not got the right job. It's not just a question of we got we made a mistake, we picked the wrong person, they, they fooled us at the interview stage and it didn't turn out as we expected. But also they picked the wrong business. You should have seen that our business is, is about something else. Yeah. And so what we tried to do is together as quickly as we can, as nicely as we can, and we'll be quite generous about it, find them their happiness in a job elsewhere. 
Mm. And that's what we explain. Uh, some people are better at it than others. I wouldn't think I'd be very good at it, but uh, we've got some people who are really, really good. And they do, in fact, make people's lives better by getting to find a job somewhere else. That's so much better than warning letters and all that. Yeah, I mean, stupid HR process around that. Yeah. I agree. And and sometimes I have conversations with podcast guests about directness. And when when directness comes with compassion, Mm. it's actually very kind. Mm. Especially if you can can be, it's not confrontation. You're talking on the same. You've actually got the same objective. You're talking on the same side, and you're actually being sympathetic for what they really need. Mm. And I'm wondering how else this plays out. So, you've got this upside down management system in place, whereby your area managers are much more acting as, as, as a kind of support. I think was your word, mm. supporter to their and facilitator to them doing well. Um, what else is going on that means that? they can thrive in their job. How, how else are they, are they supported? You talked a little bit about um, you know, supporting their personal needs as well, mm. so I wondered. Well, that, I mean, first of all, I think the, the very act of saying you're trusted, you can run your, it's your shop, you can yes. run it the way, is very good for people's well-being. It gives a sort of attachment to a, a, a sort of confidence in themselves, an attachment to the business, and a feeling that they're really valued, which, which is very meaningful and uh, is it's quite rare anyway. It's quite it's quite significant, isn't it? But yet simple. A lot of people, I think, quite often saying this, they think well-being stuff is all these side conversations, like side sessions, you know side activities that people could do that plug this gap mm. of mental health when for me health at work is like how you treat each other yeah, well, how you feel and keep being trusted actually, we've just started doing something last week we nicked the idea from quite a lot of the things come from julian richer and his richer sounds business because uh julian and james are close friends and uh, in fact my eldest grandchild is working for julian Someone uh, I might need to be in touch with. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we, we just started a thing that he's been doing where when they close down the, uh, the takings at the end of a week, they they just register, how are you feeling? How are you feeling in a scale of one to ten? And that evening, the first two weeks, has revealed things that the area manager hadn't hadn't actually got a grip of that there's something going on in someone's life that that suddenly shown up because someone would normally see life as an 8 out of 10 9 out of 10 you know registers a 4 having a bad week whatever good chance to have a chat about it so mm-hmm. so we, we think that's, that's pretty important but also uh, we, we try to do lots of things to celebrate success which is I mean well, everyone gets their birthday off, which we think is a nice thing to do. We've been doing it for twenty, nearly twenty years now, and it's just part. We we couldn't imagine doing anything else. We can't believe why the whole world doesn't do it. Uh, we even now uh, give people the day off when their child goes to their first day at primary school. Uh, there is a bereavement day off if you if you lose a pet. Um, 
Not, Big stuff. No, not a goldfish. <laughs> yeah. uh, so lots of things like that. We have these 19 holiday homes around the UK that our colleagues can stay at for free. Uh, That's we, incredible. We have a scheme we've been doing for nearly 10 years now called Dreams Come True, where we have a pot of money undefined, but somewhere between half a million and a million, which we, we put towards things which colleagues would never be able to do without our help. And it often could be visiting a long-lost relative on the other side of the world, going to Vegas, maybe finishing up the wedding chapel, uh, IVF treatment. Uh, wow, that's, that's um, holistic support. Well, even, even two divorces we paid for, which is just... Uh, but it, it's colleagues who are, we regard as nine or ten out of ten colleagues who there's something that they love to do, and we've got the chance of being able to do it for them. No, I mean, it doesn't mean you've got to, you, you can't do it for everybody. So there's this, but you know that's not a problem. But colleagues understand that you know that's the way it is. And then we've taken whole groups of them on, on holiday. We had took 150 colleagues, frontline colleagues, not the bosses, which took them off to Malta for. It's usually the bosses that get to go to the posh. Yeah, no, no we, we do it the other way around. <laughs> we, we took a whole group off to Malta. Just before lockdown, we went off to Iceland. Had a plane load we took. And uh, that's it's just because we could do it. Mm. Mm. It's, also, it's not just anybody you're hiring. You are hiring a significant amount of ex-convicts as well. That's that's part of your We've drive. got over 10% of our uh, work workforce have have spent time in prison. They mostly joined us straight from prison. Why is that important to you? It, everything, everything in business, as I say, it comes uh, as a bit of luck, a light bulb moment, and it came, a light bulb moment came to my son James when he was going to a social function which was held inside a prison, and part of the part of the evening was to have a tour of the prison led by one of, one of the inmates. So he met the guy who showed him around, impressed James so much. He said, well, when you get out, here's my card, get in touch, find your job. And uh, that's, that's how it started. And he uh, said, well, I think his mother said, well, if you can do it for one, you can do it for a few more. So he set himself the target of finding 10, and he started going around visiting prisons and trying to find the right people. And uh, now we've we've... Four, four or five hundred, uh, and it's been a fabulous success. I mean, uh, why is it important? Because it became particularly important when we discovered that 60 per, 60%, over 60% of people leaving prison reoffend within two years. Well, that drops below 20% if they've got a job. So giving a job can make a, a hell of a difference. And also, the other thing, that whatever it is, generally 85,000 people in prison. I mean, but no one was wanting to hire them. So we got a free run for years. You're bigger the crop. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've got, and so we've got great, we've got some great people that way. Yes, one or two do reoffend, but our rate is less than 3%. Probably no more than the average for people we hire in, in the ordinary way. Uh, they stay with us. Uh, they're more. They tend to be more loyal. More loyal. Than other. Mm. And actually, they're brilliant at learning the job. The, 
the thing we've had to learn, and our colleagues have been brilliant at this, is they require probably a bit more help than most in terms of helping them with the rest of their lives, especially the first six months. The beginning, especially. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, leaving prison seems, I mean, it's pretty tough. Tougher than going in for a lot of people. Because suddenly, I mean, especially if they've, if they've had a, a fairly long stretch of time there, the world's changed in 15 years. It's completely different. But overall, yeah, I, I, we've got people who've gone right up to the organisation. Right. We've got people who've 10 years service, the original map. It's, it's heading very quickly towards 20 years since he started. Um, it's just part of the way we do things these days. And That's great. I wonder how valuable as well is that, you know, you talked about all that faith you put in your employees. And I imagine... It's a generalisation that if you've been through prison, a lot of people have withdrawn a lot of faith from you, maybe partners, family members, ex-colleagues, whatever. Um, and now you're saying, I trust you and you can do this the way you want. Mm. That how, how big of a contrast that might be for someone who's yeah, come well, out of prison. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the best way for them to start, but a lot, a lot of uh, the people start working for us while they're still in prison. Rottle released on temp- temporary license, so they come out during the day, go mm, back. Open prisons, nice. and we do that for three months, four months, uh, and just about the first job we ask them to do is to take the money to the bank or something similar to say we trust you. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's not going to go wrong. Very, I mean, you, you can't believe it, it, it just won't go wrong. But the very fact that you're saying we trust you to do that, is the opposite of how the other rest of the world works. We treat so, them, yeah. yeah. You've been through this huge journey of, of growing this business, and no doubt you've had loads of extreme highs of um, as you've expanded, as you've created so much influence in the business to help people adopt this style and help others grow and, and no doubt thrive for it for themselves through supporting others. What? Tell me what's tough, what's hard. I mean, the toughest time I had was in the uh, 1980s when I just bought back, the management buyer bought back what the family business has gone totally out of the family's hands. And just imagine I've had an enormous piece of luck in doing it because the, the deal just went in our favour and we were able to get 80, well, over 75% for the management. And I got over 50% for myself. and so. It, I mean, the, the fact that we'd lost it in a bordering round made me even more determined to do it. And then, so that made it even worse when I suddenly realised that this thing's not going to make money. And I'm suddenly, you know, I'm going to be, one, be a failure, an absolute public failure. And that's the first time I really, really felt quite depressed. And, uh, so, so I got to know what that was like. You know, the, the time when you get up in the morning and yeah, oh, not another day feeling miserable or uh, nervous, looking at other people and thinking, you don't realise how lucky you are. I mean, I wish I could go around doing doing your way, but uh, I mean, yeah, it's it takes a long time to realise that uh, I'm me, and there are certain things I, I I operate in the way I do because of the personality I am. And I can't be like someone else, and that's quite tough to uh, to exercise. Because everyone thinks, "Oh God, look at this wonderful business! You must be able to do all that." I mean, but for a start, I can't. 
I can't cut keys and repair shoes. <laughs> I started off as a shoe shop assistant and yeah. uh, and then I was a shoe buyer, so I understood fashion. And, uh, but, and, and I wouldn't be the greatest person in helping someone with their personal life, not always, although sometimes I might be the right one. People come to chat to me and they seem to, seem to think it helps, but uh, mm. not, nothing like as good as those area manettes we've got. Mm. So, it sounds like you've instilled mm. You know that that type of role that they run. So it also sounds like you've you're familiar with the territory of depression. Something I'm also familiar with. Yeah. Um, well, I've written about it. Yeah, I've talked about it. I'm very clear that. What do it, you say about it? Well, I, I, I just describe what it's like. Uh, because if I describe, you know, just just mentioned it, didn't I? About sort of. You get up in the morning and you sort of still feel, and how do you feel on a scale of one to ten, like about two? And uh, you you can't stop thinking about things which actually are very important. You can't get them out of your mind. They go round and round and round, and and you you, you just just can't operate. Uh, and when I took in those terms, I said, "Well, that, that's what I'm like." So they could they come talk to me. And I described that in a little book that we did for Mental Health at Work, which is free for all our shops. Uh, I've done another one on teenage mental health as well. Uh, because in the end, the most important message, and I have to each time remind myself of this, go and talk to someone about it. Because you would never, you think, you think you're the only person in the world who has this problem. Certainly when I had it, I mean, the very first time it was actually in the mid-70s, late 70s. Never, never occurred to me that anything like that would happen to, happen to anybody, and then it happens to me, so I must be the first one. And you can't, and, and there was probably, yeah, well there was a stigma there. And, and uh, my late wife, Alex, persuaded me to go and see the doctor, and that made the difference. And, mm. uh, he, was, he was fantastic. And I thought I thought he was a very tough, hard guy because you you know you're terrified about going to it with a cold or whatever. <laughs> and uh, but no, when it came to explaining, and he explained why you're like that, basically, you've you've, over, you've overburdened your your body and your mind. You're just, and it's people who get it tend to be the high performers, people who are, are actually relied on to do more than they're capable of doing. And so it, you just burn out, and that's the body's way of saying enough is enough. Mm. And, uh, the body gives her these messages. Yeah. So, uh, so the fact I, I think it's important that those those that do experience it say that's what it's like, and also you can't you can't beat it on your own. You've got to go and find you've got to find somebody who will give you the support and, and who will be a friend you could talk to. I mean, I, uh, I, I mean, I, I did, after Alex died, my, my children persuaded me to have some bereavement counselling, which was absolute disaster, <laughs> because I, I, it wasn't her fault, I just had no sense of identity with the person I was talking to. It just, it's got to be a good match. I just hated the experience, yeah. Mm. I packed it so up. get support, but maybe also find out who, with whom mm. is the right fit. Yeah, well, it, it, You've got to, in a sense, in a lot of these things, like, like with, with the children that we've been involved with as foster carers and so on, that 
who've got attachment problems which are caused in their early life. Thing that uh, my wife Alex used to say a lot, you've always got to remember, John, it's not their fault. It's not their fault. They were, they were not made like that. Someone else has made them like that. And so we do need to have these constant reminders. And I mean, I remember very recently talking to one of our managers and he said, I can just have a word. He said, You know, you know, You've now, we've now got this uh, mental health counsellor. She's amazing, she's fantastic. If it hadn't have been for what we've done in the business with uh, the mental health, having mental health first aiders and the book we've got, and so, I'd never have met her. And, and my life's completely different. Now, that one person, it makes it so much worthwhile, more worthwhile for, for uh, putting our efforts into what we thought was just a box ticking exercise. But it's not like just saying, right, we'll appoint X as being the mental health officer. No, it's, it's a question. The proper strategy there, which yeah. I actually think is quite rare from mm -hmm. what I witnessed with this type yeah. of rollout. Um, maybe just to close then, how do you look after yourself? Do you know what nourishes you, John? How do I look up? Well, I think the answer, very short word answer to that is badly. Uh, I have recently managed to cook rather better because I still live on my own, but I've got a lot more friends now and I'm spending I'm spending a lot more time with other people, which I think is very important. Um, Good company. I'm very lucky I've got. I actually went away last week for a few days with my three eldest children, my younger two uh, adopted children, so they're the younger ones. Uh, but I can't remember ever the four of us going away for a few days together like that. It was very nice of them to have the old man along and uh, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah. So I've been very lucky, I've got a family who's really supportive and now I've got a lot of friends, but I need that. I, I, during lockdown, I sort of split the day into three. Morning was work, the afternoon it was reading, uh, but the, the evening was just hitting the phones. And talking to talking to people. Yeah, you know, I just looked through the, the, the telephone book and found and found people that we, we you know some of them in the same situation as me, and uh, I just spent every evening chatting, mm. and that was Power very helpful. Wow, John, such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I really felt like at the end I wanted to continue talking to him. He was such a delight to be around and has such a deep philosophy, which seems really simple yet clear. I'm Ruth Ferenger and you've been listening to the Conscious Leaders podcast. We showcase the human side of great leadership so you can learn about what it's really like and gain both philosophical and practical takeaways. To learn more about us and what we do to help leaders build a calm, collaborative and productive workplace, visit consciousleaders.org.uk.